Greetings, dear, dear listeners, and welcome to another episode of The Working Experience, a very warm, open-arm audio embrace and a squeeze. This episode is brought to you by my company, One Circle Media. One Circle Media is a hybrid digital agency and media content creator. We create and design apps, websites, videos, social media content, and physical products. We are artists, directors, designers, producers, coders, editors, thinkers, makers, and creators who embrace story and creativity from design, web and app development, animation, docs, features, TV shows, digital and social media content to physical products. For our clients, we create content that builds networks and audiences across multiple platforms. Check out our work at OneCircleDigital.com and OneCircleBrand.com. If you work for a network, studio, brand, startup, or corporation and are looking for a partner to create media that will build, engage, and entertain, reach out to me at John at OneCircleMedia.com. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks, everyone, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Working Experience. The Working Experience. Route 93 North is almost at a standstill. It's a rough one out there this morning. Snow and sleet. There is no service on that. Stand clear of the closing doors, please. Uh, Yeah, folks, we're going to be a few minutes. We have train traffic ahead of us. We should be moving shortly. John, we need that report ASAP. Where are we on that presentation? And HR wants to see you. Did you return that email yet? We have a team meeting at 10. The state link, Bob. Teamwork makes the dream work. (laughs) They're moving in a different and after the meeting, we'll have a breakout session. Where are my hot pockets? This microwave is disgusting. Oh, God, what's that? He was wow. living his Sexual toenails at his desk. I can't take it anymore. I can't take it anymore. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Working Experience Podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of welcoming Mr. Muhammad Abdul Hadi, founder and owner of Down North Pizza. Down North Pizza is a for-profit, mission-driven business in North Philadelphia that exclusively employs formerly incarcerated individuals while providing culinary career opportunities at a fair wage and an equitable workplace along with excellent food. Uh, Welcome, Mohammed. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. Uh, Can you just tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, your your background, that kind of thing? um, from West Philadelphia, uh, grew up on infamous 52nd Street. If anybody's from Philly, knows about the, um, it's a lot of history on that particular street in West Philadelphia. Um, grew up, you know, mom and dad um, did the, you know, uh, Philadelphia school system, graduated from Temple University. I would consider myself a serial entrepreneur. I've been involved in various different businesses. Um, real estate, um, cars, um, you name it, you know, I've kind of been dipping and dabbling in different industries. Um, it's a restaurant thing, hosp- restaurant hospitality thing is something new to me. Uh, Down North is my uh, first restaurant venture, one of many that I cont- plan to continue on and expand the brand. Um, yeah, my father, um, definitely family man. So it's a little bit about myself. Uh, were your parents like into opening businesses or what did they do? Uh, my, my, my father, um, and actually my brothers, uh, I kind of would want to say my brothers, older brothers kind of got me into like the whole entrepreneurial spirit, uh, growing up. 
my brother, his name is Kenya. He uh, started one of probably the, the most famous clothing lines that come out of Philly called Mesquite in the early 2000s, where they uh, incorporated a lot of paint on clothes. So it was like a big hit in the early 2000s. Uh, he was the, one of the owners slash founders of that industry. And that, I mean, that business per se. And I kind of grew up and seeing him starting different businesses, it kind of inspired me at a young age to kind of want to get into like the whole entrepreneurial thing. Is that what you majored in at Temple or? No, I majored in criminal justice, uh, oh. criminal injustice, what I like to call it. Um, okay, yeah. That was my field of choice because I was always intrigued by the law, um, the laws that govern and how they can be, you know, manipulated in some facets and kind of work if you work them right. So that was something that always interests me to kind of get more knowledge base about like how they work and how they operate for me to get a better understanding of how they're used against a lot of people as well. Do you think that has that served you in being an entrepreneur? Um, I guess it gave me more insight with this particular uh, business down North pizza, because you see about some of the laws and how systematically they're put in place to kind of um, hold people down, I'm going to say, to say the least. And for me, just understanding that and building this business model, um, I guess it gave me more insight in why this is this particular business is important and why it's necessary and needed in these particular communities. I, I'm interested because my father was a lawyer, so I've always had kind of an interest in it. I, I did not become a lawyer myself. I never pursued it, but I've always been, he had much, I mean, he did criminal defense work. He had kind of a practical eye towards like, I have this specific client that I need to represent in this specific case. But, you know, he talked about those things too, how they can be used to just kind of railroad people, you know. Yeah. Mostly. My father was a mechanical engineer, but my father also was a community builder, community leader. I think that's where a lot of that inspiration comes from. Um, he was just big on building community and in giving back. So I think that aspect, you know, was coming from my father and just watching him growing up, um, just working and kind of why he wasn't working, always working towards something else. Mm -hmm. And you can kind of meld those two things, that entrepreneurial spirit and community activism. Yeah. Kind of got, you know, I can marry them together and now it's like we're here um, mm -hmm. on this road, on this journey with Down North Pizza and you know, it's looking promising now. And I hope, like I said, in the early near future to keep on expanding and um, keep going on different ventures within the hospitality industry. All right. Okay. So what uh, can you um, tell us like how you came to open this particular place, like in this particular location? I mean, I know that, you know, I read like Kitchen Confidential by Anthony Bourdain and I, I found that very instructive on like, <laughs> what to do, what not to do. So how did you choose your particular location, this particular type of food? Like what went into all that? Uh, one of the ventures I was in, I was in real estate for some time and I bought the property in 2015. Um, and at the time it was a shell, it's a beat up building. And I knew I wanted to do something in particular that would benefit the community. Because when you look at this community, it's, it's broken, right? they have 
nothing to look forward to in this community, nothing of substance. It's when you walk through some of these blocks, there's no hope. This is North Philadelphia where you're North Philadelphia. This is yep. Strawberry Mansion section of North Philadelphia. Okay. So for me, I knew I couldn't be a traditional business that looked to just come into the neighborhood and take from a neighborhood, and not give anything or put anything back into the community. So for some time, I just kind of sat on the building, kind of brainstorming in my head what was needed, what was necessary in this particular community. It's a food desert, for one. You have a Chinese store, food store, you have a bodega, and that's pretty much it as far as options, right? Nothing of quality for the people of the neighborhood to consume. So that was one thing I looked at. And the other thing I looked at was some of the other issues that plagued that community, recidivism, um, lack of education, things like that, that also plagued this community. So I sat and thought, how can I marry the two where I can do something that could also benefit the community? And I said, why not put a restaurant here? Uh, so put the restaurant there. So I thought about it and I'm like, well, how about just put a pizzeria, right? Pizza is a worldwide food item that everybody consumes, right? Quite sure everybody in the neighborhood loves pizza. And it's something particularly for African-Americans that we don't have equity in the space of the pizza. So for me, with this business concept, I felt like I can kill a lot of birds with one stone. So I can check off a couple boxes. So pizza was it. Um, of course, you know, I had a background in real estate. I love visiting and frequenting restaurants, but I've never actually been in the back of a restaurant and operationally seen how they function and things like that. So for the years, it took for me to do some research and I had to build a team. Now I understand I had to build a team because I was cool on the real estate side, but the culinary side uh, was something that I needed to Put together a team to get the proper validation um, on the culinary side so um yeah so that was it so you know fast forward to 2018 um i'm just graduating temple university with my degree and i'm really looking like to go full-fledged with this idea and this concept because initially i wanted to do something surrounded around kids and math that was the original concept behind down North Pizza. The original name of the shop was going to be called Pizza Pie. Um, that was like the original concept I had back in 2018. P.I.? Yeah, but okay. the, having a pie sign incorporated somehow within a logo. Yeah. Because yeah. I understood that um, African-American youth, as well as adults, that's a, a particular subject matter that they struggle with. So I wanted to kind of do something community-based that married the idea of pizza and math, right? Um, so that was the initial idea behind, uh, before it was down north. But then I thought long and hard, and I'm like, you know what? I think that's a great idea. But one thing that they really need is to try to combat recidivism, because majority of the uh, residents in this particular area are no longer in this area due to recidivism and due to them being, you know, incarcerated and things like that. So I thought on a broader scale, how can we get some of these people back into this neighborhood? How can we, you know, put some 
erase some of the barriers, these employment barriers that a lot of people who've been formerly incarcerated have to overcome. So that's when I kind of pivot and said, you know what, I think I want to do this and I want to focus on combat and recidivism. And I was sold on the idea. I thought of, damn, what am I going to call it? And Philly, down north is a saying that only Philadelphians understand because as we all know, north is up, not down. Right. But for Philadelphians, wherever you're located geographically within Philadelphia, you always say when you're going to North Philly, I'm going down north. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can be north of North Philly. You can be in South Philly. You can be in West Philly. Wherever you're at, you always say, I'm going down north. And you always say also, I'm going out west. So that's something that, you know, you always constantly are uh, saying, being from Philly. And Philadelphians understand it. But sometimes when you get people from out of town, they don't really understand, like, well, how's down? I thought down was, you know, north was up. Right, right. So um, that's kind of the story for anybody that didn't know. Um, the understanding of the name. So, and another thing in Philadelphia, as Philadelphians, we're very prideful about our city. So that's um, another thing where I was like, you know, I didn't think about nobody else but Philadelphians when I thought about the name. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's, I live outside Boston and it's like South Shore, North Shore. Like everybody here knows what you're talking about. But, uh, well, I used to live in Brooklyn mm-hmm. and everybody would talk about him going into the city which everybody there knows is Manhattan. But the whole thing is a city. But people who grew up in Brooklyn, I mean, I didn't grow up there, but I lived there for a while. It was like, well, I'm going into the city. So, you know, every, or I work in the city or whatever. So everybody's got their, I guess, their little things, you know, their little local sayings. But uh, so that, that's interesting. You bought the property before you even really knew what you wanted to do with it. Yeah. Yeah. Would you say it's, um, what am I, I'm looking for, like if people keep walking by and they see abandoned properties and all of that, like that seems to lend to a certain like downward spiral, you know, and it's sort of like a domino effect, like when properties start to get abandoned, nobody's in them. So it seems like your idea was like, let's at least buy this place and think about something productive to do with it. Yeah, because uh, I think you could look at it two ways. Um, from a visionary perspective, which I consider myself, when you see abandoned, you see opportunity too, right? So I guess that's how I looked at it in the grand scheme of things. Maybe not tomorrow, maybe not next year, but at some point in time, there's nothing but space and opportunity, right? Mm-hmm. And for me, when I get ideas and concepts in my head, it's kind of hard to stop me from going full-fledged and doing it, right? Right. Um, and you know, not all of my business ventures have been successful, but I always give it my all when I'm trying. Right. And I'm okay with it not working out. Right. Um, and that's something that I accept because I know there's an air, there's an inherent risk when you go into business, when you start things. And I only ever knew how to start things from nothing. Right. Right. Because growing up, I didn't have, um, business advisor. I didn't have the, the, the proper structure to understand and know how to start businesses when you can leverage things. So for me, it was more so I just got to work hard and get it done and do it. That's kind of my mentality for starting anything. And I, um, I feel like that's when I'm at my best when I'm starting something from nothing. Um, 
And I understood that about myself a couple of years back, that that's one of my strengths, um, starting something from nothing. So you're pretty comfortable with risk? Absolutely. Do you think that is something that all entrepreneurs have to be comfortable with or be willing to be comfortable with? Absolutely, because there's no guarantee. I could, you could spend a year working on something and not getting paid. You have to be okay with that, right? Mm. Because especially when you have a team, you ultimately have to, you, you eat last, right? So it could be a situation where everybody's taken care of except for you but you're all ultimately playing the long game, right? Mm. So you have to be comfortable with that. And when people ask me about being an entrepreneur, that's the first question I ask them. I say, are you okay with working tirelessly, maybe 80 plus hours a week, every two weeks and not getting paid? And they think about it and they be like, I never thought about it like that, but you have mm. to think about it like that because that could be a reality. Mm -hmm. Especially mm -hmm. when you build something from nothing. Mm -hmm. Because those hours get longer and longer. Mm -hmm. um, and your dedication to that project, you have to be dedicated. Because even when stuff doesn't look, it looks grim, right? You still have to be able to push through and realize that you have a goal that you're trying to attain. And that's primary in your mind. And a lot of people have to understand that when they want to go into being an entrepreneur. Because it's not for everybody. And I think being honest with people and people being honest with themselves is the key to success within entrepreneurship. Do you, that's one of those words I hear people use and sometimes I think they don't really know what it means. So what, what I'm like, do you find some people when they find out the reality are kind of like, no thanks, like I'm, I just, you know, that's not for me. Yeah, a lot of people, yeah, you know. definitely not. It's okay. People have to understand that it's okay to work and just get a guaranteed check. Mm -hmm. It's okay because some people have um, their lifestyle, you know, is conducive to that. Whereas though, you know, mm -hmm. I can work and just get my paycheck and live my life. Mm -hmm. And I think when people venture off into entrepreneurship and then they get the harsh realities of it because everything look, especially it's modern day and age, everything looks great. Everybody looks like they're winning. Everybody looks it's all, you know, it's all, um, it's yeah. not reality, right. Yeah. Um, now North was in the making since 2015, right? I bought right. the building in 2015. The doors weren't cracked till 2020. Oh, yeah. Um, so that process was five years. Um, property was sitting I mean, maybe two, four years before I actually started doing the construction and actually building it. But that's all a process in itself that I was comfortable with taking my time and actually doing this the right way as opposed to this opening up and not, you know, checking certain boxes when you're trying to open up a business and establish a brand too. And you had to, like, you got to pay taxes on that, I assume, that property? Like, yeah. it yeah, can't just sit there. No, no, no. Yeah, it's a cost. And, you yeah. know, you also have opportunity costs that, you know, people like, well, you're missing out on money, but it could have been. But yeah. you have to be comfortable with that because I believe that this happened at the right time when social consciousness was heightened in the world. And had I opened this in 2018, 
who knows? Maybe it doesn't have the same effect. Mm-hmm. Or maybe the, t- the storyline doesn't go as far. You never know. But I'm a firm believer that this happened at the right time. And I never question when things happen or when they're supposed to happen. Right. And that requires a lot of faith. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so to get to the mission, you've, you've mentioned it. Um, so down north, not only are you willing to hire formerly incarcerated people, that seems to be who you seek out. Yes, we exclusively hire formerly incarcerated. And very intentional with that um, because through our various businesses that I've ran, I've always hired not always now it wasn't always exclusive but i always hired formerly incarcerated individuals and i never get caught up in looking at what people tell me on paper i have to actually ultimately meet the individual because what somebody presents to you in an interview nine times out of ten is not them mm-hmm. so you have to be able to see the actual individual and i think that's the problem a lot of the um what why formerly incarcerated individuals aren't given that chance because people can't look past some of their mistakes and actually look at the individual right well, in my experience with working with them they're some of the hardest working like most reliable uh best humans that i've ever worked with right and they made a mistake 10 years ago and are still paying the price they're still paying the price yeah and which doesn't seem to do anybody any good. I mean, me I mean, or it does, them. It does a lot of people some good, you know, um, people that own. Uh, true, private prisons and yeah, private I know, prisons, yeah, you know, I know. In some of the states that can offset their budgets based off of right. prison. Yeah, things true. like that. So there's an inherent benefit to the system because it's now a business, right? It's the third largest employer in the United States. So mm-hmm. it's a business. People benefit from it. So now my idea with Down North, if prisons can be built, which is a model based off of people making mistakes, right? Mm -hmm. Then why can I build the business on the positive note based around people that have made mistakes that are trying to turn their lives around? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I guess it meant like, it doesn't do me any good to have (laughs) a formerly incarcerated person out there who's unemployed. I mean, that doesn't make, me or anybody else any safer but yeah as you say some of these laws seem to be designed well i mean they lobby for laws to be put on the books to be broken to populate private uh, prisons which is not how it's supposed to work i don't think not how it's supposed to work at all and the other thing is that they put the you know pennsylvania has the most state facilities in the united states um and a lot of these facilities are in these little towns that basically live off of these prisons. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned something about lobbying, lobbying, you know, people lobbying for them. They're actually towns that lobby for prisons, right? Mm-hmm. That's a means for textiles to get driven to these particular towns. So it's, it's a lot. It's a very complex system, right? So yeah. it's a lot to go into it. And yeah, it's very beneficial for a lot, a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what's the hiring process like? You put out an ad, you have people come in, fill out applications, come in for interviews, that kind of thing. Is it traditional that yeah, way or? I meet people where they at. I mean, how you expect somebody just come home from 
prison to have his decorated resume, know how to fill out an application. Right. But they have work experience, right? Because mm-hmm. jails are ran by the people on the inside. Mm-hmm. Not by the skills, they ran by the, the inmates. Mm-hmm. The occupied jails. So they have a ton of experience, right? They just haven't put it down on paper. They don't have a traditional resume. Right. That's why I typically meet people where they're at. Um, when they ask for, you know, they call it, the, if they call the store, it's like, well, come in, let's talk. And they talk about how they was working in the kitchen. It was feeding um, 2,000 people a day, mm-hmm. meals and preparing meals to that capacity. I mean, that was the story of, the, you know, Michael Carter, executive chef. He, you know, he was a master in um, culinary, feeding, you know, thousands of people and didn't even know that he had, <laughs> he was, um, doing catering essentially mm-hmm. right because he was yeah. running the kitchen inside a, a facility and he was responsible for feeding two three thousand people so this is the reality they have a ton of experience but it's just not on a resume so i like to meet people where they're at and just come in and meet the individual to see how or if this can work so how do they do they know about you by like word of mouth or how, yeah, how I have do... word of mouth? Uh, there's some organizations I work closely with in Philadelphia that send me candidates. Okay. That's kind of been the hiring process thus far. Are they kind of nervous coming in to actually sit down and talk with somebody about a like professional job? No, because everybody that's been there and every, the whole team is, you know, been through the same walk, the same walk. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. Thing. So, it's kind of like you feel comfortable. Okay. You're not being judged. You're walking into a situation where it's like, I can be me. Right. And they're not going to tell me no, because I have a record. I don't have to lie or I don't have to hide the fact and potentially get fired once they find out and run my background check, because this is what we do. This is who we're seeking out. So they'd be a lot more comfortable than like walking into a, maybe a warehouse or something like that and interviewing for a job like that. Yeah. Yes. Well, it must be discouraging right from the outset where you wouldn't even bother filling out an application if you had to check that box and then face the rejection. Absolutely. Because that box is like, when you get to that box, it's that long, deep breath, right? Yeah. Of do I check it? Or do I not check it? And I feel like it's the desperation, wherever that desperation was, is if they, it comes down to if they check the box or if they don't. Because mm-hmm. sometimes people are so desperate that, yeah, if I can just get a month out of this job, get out the hole, by the time they find out, you know, I'll be cool. Or do I take a chance and hope that they can just give me a chance, right? Because that's all I'm looking for, it's a chance. Mm-hmm. and understanding that you know I have no you know I have no other choices because you right. know it's either try to look for a job or ultimately go back to what landed me in jail in the first place that's that's the option that I don't want to explore this is what's going through their head because when they're inside a prison that's what they want like they're thinking about how they can really be productive members of society 
However, when they face with some of the harsh realities of discriminating against, you know, how people are able to discriminate against people who've made mistakes, which quite frankly, we all have made mistakes that probably could have landed us in jail, but mm -hmm. it's just a matter of, did you get caught or not, right? So, or did you have money to yeah, <laughs> get away with whatever you did? To hire a legal team to, you know, yeah. get in there and argue on your, on your behalf, or was I so poor that I had to take whatever deal mm -hmm. they put on the table because I didn't want to risk going to trial and then they giving me the maximum that they could possibly give me for a charge. So that's, you know, these are things that go through their heads. It seems like our justice system does not really put people in context. Like you said, you try to meet people where they're at. And when you, you know, sometimes there's a book called courtroom 302. It's about the busiest criminal courtroom in America. It's in Chicago. <clears throat> and this one judge talks about that. Like, I can't just take this person in my courtroom right now. Like wh where were they when they were 12 or eight or 14? Or, you know, maybe this person is 25 years old now and is an adult and responsible for their actions and so forth. But like, he talked about trying to put things into context, but they're so overwhelmed, they can't really do that. But it's like, how do you take somebody, you know, out of their environment, their con not consider their whole history and just take the person right now and say, well, you did this, you're going away for 10 years or, you know. Seems like you try to, as you said, meet people where they're at, put them in context, and maybe they can move on with their lives. It may be because, you know, to what you're saying is like, yeah, you don't know a lot of people's backstory. And one thing that a lot of people don't know either is that some of these people haven't committed crimes in 10 to 15 years, right? Mm -hmm. Something called direct violations when you're on parole, that something as simple as moving, right? To another address, not telling your PO for whatever reason, right? That's a direct violation. That can send you back upstate. Um, not telling them that you got a new job. Uh, forgetting to report. These are all being around other people that's on parole. This is an inherent risk that we run at the shop because everybody's on parole, right? Mm -hmm. So technically, right? You're not allowed to be around other people on parole. And when you think about that, it's like, wow, the system is really set up for you to fail because could you imagine like these guys spent probably five, 10 plus years with these, with some of these guys in, in jail, right? Half their life been in jail. They've been around these same individuals for years and years and years. And once released, Right. Mind you, you might eat, sleep, laugh, joke, play cards or whatever with them on the inside. Once you're released, you're technically not allowed to be around these people. Right. Mm -hmm. These people that you done grown, grown with. These are like brothers. These are like family because you've actually been around these people more than your actual family. Mm -hmm. And then once you guys are released, you're not even allowed to be around each other. So could you imagine, let's say, going to college or university and joining a fraternity and going through you know the brotherhood for four plus years and then once you graduate it's like all right well you just you know fraternity break it up you're not allowed to be around each other no more for the rest of your time and it's like wow that's that's deep right mm -hmm. 
and you know ultimately they you like isolated in society uh if you think about it like that mm-hmm. so it's like everything stacked the uh the deck is stacked against you it's like no resources no support but make sure you walk, walk a straight line it's mm-hmm. like giving somebody a basket to carry water in right and it's like make sure you know by the time you get here make sure the, the water is still in there and it's like right i was in holes in here i'm gonna do that right well i mean who else do they know i mean who else are they go, are they gonna go hang around at a country club i mean what <laughs> and, and they go back to their to where they grew up right i mean yes because like, they don't have any other options i mean do you want right. to hang in other neighborhoods i don't think people would want uh people just hanging around loitering in other neighborhoods so i mean let's look at the reality of it yeah and so they're not allowed to be around anybody else who's on parole. Like, or, I mean, that's, or is that, that just kind of a general rule? This is a general rule. General rule. So have you had to deal with any legal issues with the employees? Like, have they come to you and said, like, this is going on, that's going on, or? Um, we fortunate enough because my uh, ideology is that you throw as many resources at them, then you give them the best chance to succeed. Our team has been intact since, you know, maybe this, our same team has been intact since maybe our second month open, right? And I provide them with as many resources as possible. Transportation, I have two apartments on top of the store that they can live in if needed for six six months free because I'm able to offset the rent through the state through different programs that nine times out of 10, these guys don't even know these programs exist, right? Mm -hmm. So, I have departments. I also have pro bono legal representation for them. If something were to come about where they have some legal troubles with their pro officer, probation officer, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, one story I can tell you that my executive chef, Michael Carter, had an incident with his pro officer. It wasn't even his direct pro officer. Is um, We were featured in Bon Appetit. We were featured as one of the top 12 restaurants in America that is reshaping the restaurant industry. So it was a big celebration, it was a big spread. We were featured on Gail King's show, CBS morning show, and um, it was a big thing. But Mike was the, the center of the article and he talked about how he became, he was a former prison cook that is now an executive chef at one of the top restaurants in America. And mind you, Mike has been reporting, Mike has been on parole for the past you know, 12 years. And he'd been working and doing his thing. So the day after this was released on national news, he gets a call from his pro officer. Well, not even his direct pro officer. It's, uh, I guess, the, the supervisor. Mm-hmm. And they said, coincidentally, that they were auditing his file and noticed that he didn't complete a program that he was supposed to complete in 2016. And that he had to... He had 30 days to complete this uh, drug program. And mind you, Mike has never been convicted of any drug-related crimes. So mm-hmm. for him, he didn't even know where that was coming from. Um, and when he called, um, actually, how he found out was that his parole officer, that parole officer called my phone as his employer and said, we need to get in touch with Michael Carter. And I'm like, well, what's going on? He said, you just need to tell him to call me. And when I called Mike, Mike was like, well, this guy hasn't been my pro officer for two years. I got another pro officer. He just, you know, sits on the supervisory board. And I'm like, well, just give him a call and see what he wants, Mike. And 
he told Mike he needed him to report the next day. Mind you, this article, it just came out yesterday. And we didn't look at it as a coincidence because it's like, I mean, what's going on? So Mike right. went to report and he told him about that program and he told him that he had 30 days to complete the program. And Mike comes back and tells me about it. And then I said, well, listen, you can reach out to you know the attorney that is willing, you know, he represents you guys on these type of incidents and you know, see what happens. So with the help of the attorney and also the fact that this was also included in this article from the NPR news, this very incident, um, the following day after the NPR was released, um, they called Mike and said, you know what, you don't have to complete the program, case is closed and uh, go back <laughs> go back to your everyday life. What, what a coincidence, yeah. That, Everything that all... seems to be a, a coincidence. So coincidentally, <laughs> this happened. <laughs> You know, I, I can't, like, my first instinct in his position would be run. I mean, seriously, like, never make that phone. Well, I don't know about run, but, like, yeah, I, I can't imagine the anxiety. 12 years on parole. When does this end? When is he off parole? He's off parole in 2030. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I don't know if I would get a night's sleep, you know? I mean, this is the reality. And, of course, there's a, a, a ton of anxiety going through his head because it's like, I've been working so hard to get to where I'm at right now. And literally there's a chance I walk through those doors and don't come back out, right? You have to always think about that. Mm -hmm. This is so easy to walk through those double doors going in, but you don't never know what could happen or if you can even come back out. Right. So I think any, anybody who goes in and gets a call like that, they always try to rectify their affairs on the outside before they go yeah take that um that long walk right but i guess you start to wonder you know, what's the point like what's the point of getting the job what's the point of going straight what's the point of doing if if you can just get violated for for doing those things parole and probation is like the 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 ugly cousin of like prison right where it's like they need each other to survive um, harsh reality, right? Because I think the jail releases something like 750,000 people a year. And when we talked about it being like one of the largest employers, like, so if you're releasing that many people on a yearly basis, then you absolutely need that many more, you need that many people plus more coming in, right? So you need some type of tail to keep these people coming in and out. Like, hotel model the beds have to be filled mm -hmm. so you kind of can't just have prison without something that ensures that your prison will remain full or near capacity yeah and there, there doesn't seem to be a lot of um sympathy or compassion on their end or Sometimes even reasonable, you know, I'm sure some are, but, you know, in the case of, of Michael, you said, you know, you'd think any reasonable person would look at this and say, what, you know, what are we doing here? This guy's like doing what he should be doing, leave him alone. But I, I don't know how much yeah. that ever enter into, enters into it. No, because sometimes you wonder, like, is that, you know, do they really want me doing good? Right. Because ideally, if you're releasing that many people, like the prison system released that many people, do they really want 750,000 people doing the right thing? 
Right. Or just violating and going back. It's the question that they have to ask themselves internally. Yeah. And I'm going to lean on the side that probably not. Yeah. Yeah. So you're, um, I mean, you do run a business. It is a for-profit business. So you do have to make a profit in order to actually keep running. That's the reality of the situation. So how do you, what's your, um, uh, do you advertise or how do people know about your place? Who are your customers? That kind of thing. Um, Yes, we have a a strong presence on social media um, that kind of grew within the past year. Uh, we've been getting a ton of notoriety notoriety from a lot of food magazines and publications, um, Food and Wine, Bon Appetit. Um, New York Times mentioned us as one of the 50 best restaurants in America they're most excited about. Uh, Cade Nash has listed us as one of the 19 best restaurants in Philadelphia. Um, Philadelphia said we are one of the best, rest, one of the 50 best restaurants in Philly. Um, we won Philly Mag. Um, best square pizza in Philly. Um, so a lot of people have been noticing us initially for the mission. And then once they come into the shop, like, wow, these guys have a very um, delicious product that, you know, what, I mean, what better feeling to be supporting a good cause and get some great food, right? That's kind of like, you know, those two things have been married. Without giving away any secrets, like what's, uh, what's, is like there's Chicago style pizza, there's New York, does Philly have its own unique signature on pizza? I guess we just make it good. (laughs) (laughs) Um, There's a lot of pizza, uh, pizzerias that um, just make some good pizzas. And I think the new wave of pizza was kind of spearheaded by, um, by Joe Badia. and Pizza Badia down in uh, Fishtown, because they kind of, um, I feel like they got a lot of um, eyes on that pizza scene in Philly for what they were doing years back. Um, in Philly, we just like, we just get a, we just do something. We think we can just do it good. So it's like, no shade to New York, but um, we probably feel like we got the best pizza. And I'm quite well, sure people out there think that as well. Some some pizza in New York is garbage. I mean, uh, you know, let's be honest about it. So, uh, and some of it's, <laughs> uh, so what is, what's the biggest? Um, also, to answer your question, we got the Detroit style pizza that we do, and ours is um, we kind of put our Philly twist on it. So, wait, what's Detroit style? See, I've heard this term, but it's new to me. What is just De- Detroit style so pizza. Traditional Detroit style pizza is a square pizza, usually um, use Wisconsin brick uh, cheese. Um, the cheese is the base um, of the pizza, and the sauce goes on. The sauce and the toppings goes on top of the cheese. Oh, okay, all right. And it has this nice, like, golden crown that goes around the pizza. That, uh, which is really people think that the pizza is burnt, but it's actually the cheese. Okay. That makes this crown that cooks on the side of the pan in the oven. All right. It gives it that nice crunch, that crisp, right? Okay. So um, we, we, we love the Detroit-style pizza. Well, you know, coming up, when Mike was coming up with, you know, these, these various different flavors and things like that, and he was doing his research on pizza in general, 
it was nostalgic to us because we grew up eating square square pizza um it's a brand called elio's pizza that we used to eat it comes in this white box the box elio's yeah. pizza delicious and, yeah <laughs> it's delicious i mean you probably look at it now and probably say you know you won't go nowhere near it but as oh when kid, i was a kid oh i mean what better thing friday night all you needed was so a good and oh. as a kid you can operate the toaster oven you couldn't go nowhere near the actual oven but throw that uh slice yeah uh cheese all nice and crisp on top and yeah delicious delicious so yeah. we grew up that we also grew up on like that buttery crust of like the pizza hut pizza when pizza hut pizza was pizza hut right Here's pizza that. hut pizza used to be good so a lot of people equate our buttery crust to that pizza hut mm -hmm. crust that people used to yearn for um when we were growing up yeah so the nostalgia thing kicked in and it's like yo we, these square pies people can relate to that yep i think you know it's like if people just make fresh food you know it doesn't have to be complicated but just like that's, fresh ingredients and that's what we do here if yeah. we have a very small kitchen it's a scratch kitchen we don't have too much room for storage yeah we buy fresh everything we, we we cook um down to the dough is made fresh on a daily basis. The lemonade is freshly squeezed lemonade with yep. cane sugar. Um, I pride myself on just using actual ingredients, right? People are like, well, do you have sodas? I said, no, we don't have any sodas. Oh. Freshly squeezed lemonade. We have fries that you, if you come into the shop and you can see, you know, at any given time, somebody be cutting fries at the fry station. Yeah. Yeah, we have wings that we get that no antibodies, this, you know, good, grass-fed um, chicken um, that we use. Mm -hmm. And yeah, these guys that are in the kitchen cooking, you know, are, are, we're chefs, right? So they actually, you know, preparing this food and these toppings that go on these pizzas fresh. We have a, a lamb sausage pizza. Like we, we, we push the envelope on putting our twist on these Detroit style pies and these flavor profiles that we come up with. No, not we, but you know, Mike and, and the, the kitchen team come up with. Um, just lamb sausage. Yes. Wow. That sounds good. They get real creative in that kitchen. Yeah. Yeah. Well, pizza is like a nice kind of blank slate. You can, you know, get really creative. And we debunk the idea that, uh, you know, some people argue that there's pineapples. Do pineapples belong on pizza? And we've made believers out of a lot of people because we have our own signature pineapple pizza where we I've use... Pineapple and bacon, I've, I, I really enjoy. So that's our pizza, right? So we use barbecue beef bacon, caramelized pineapples, where we actually cook the pineapples down. Wow. Um, and then we put jalapeno peppers on it, and we actually do a barbecue sauce on top. We don't use the tomato sauce. We do a, a smoked, in-house smoked barbecue sauce on top. That is amazing. <laughs> that sounds amazing. Yeah, pineapple on pizza. I don't. It, it's uh, very divisive. That yes, that, yes. <laughs> that topic. You know, it's funny though. Like there are so many rest, like chain restaurants, like Olive Garden and all, which we'll never get sponsorship for, because I'm about to say it's garbage. Like it's just overpriced garbage. And I know somebody used to work in one, and he said it's just boiling bag stuff because they don't have chefs. I mean, anybody can just they hire teams. Yeah, they hit cooks that come in there and just you know work the line. Um, and yeah, and you know, I never wanted to be that model, even with my plans on expanding, it's very, it's a very intimate 
expansion, right? Mm-hmm. Where no, it's not going to be, um, you know, we're franchising. No, this is where we go into these actual areas. We do our research. We partner with people that's been doing the work in these neighborhoods and shine light on what they've been doing. Um, it's not a predatory uh, situation where we actually, you know, looking to exploit. We're looking to work with, you know, understanding that we're not from the neighborhood. Every neighborhood has their different set of needs, right? There's no blanket for it. Mm-hmm. Every poverty, you know, driven neighborhood, every underprivileged neighborhood, they have different needs. So getting in there and actually understanding the particular needs of that neighborhood, mm-hmm. it was an easier situation in Philly. We're all from Philly, right? But when we go to expand, it's going to take time to actually sit and talk to some of these people and get, you know, what are their needs? Because ultimately we're there to serve and to better a particular neighborhood and kind of uplift that neighborhood from within. That's the, you know, that's the game plan. And we're mm-hmm. sticking to that. So very important that we, we stick to what we do. And I'm a big stickler for that. And I tell the guys, it's like, you know, we just, we kind of just put our heads down and work, right? I still work in the shop with the guys is, you know, something I look forward to on a weekly basis because we actually built a family dynamic in that kitchen. Okay. We're, we're all parents. We're all, you know, we laugh, we joke. We have uh, outings that we do. There are mandatory outings that we do maybe twice a month. Mm-hmm. We go somewhere, we may go bowling, may go out to different, to patronize different, um, you know, chef friends that we have, their restaurants. Um, this is stuff that we do to kind of, you know, help with the process and create that support system that's needed, right? For people to stay productive, right? Stay motivated. So what's, uh, what would you say like on a day-to-day basis is the biggest challenge? Like what, it, what is like just in the day-to-day running of the business, like is like, man, we're, you know, we gotta keep on this or, you know, just kind of, it's, I don't want to say an obstacle, but a challenge. What is the biggest challenge? Let me think. Um, sometimes this, um, trying to think about on a day-to-day basis. Like ordering ingredients or like getting shipments in or, cause I know we've had like a struggle. Cause we, you know, we get, we source things from different uh, places. Um, but Mike has a good handle on that. I feel like initially, we were struggling with a lot of obstacles because, you know, as I said, this is my first restaurant, but I was, you know, so focused in just learning and um, observing and learning from like the team, right? I had to understand that I was not a culinary professional and I take my entrepreneur slash, you know, leader slash boss, whatever you want to call it, take that hat off and sit it down, right? And become a student, right? and always continuously wanting to learn because I have to learn from these guys the same way they learn from me. So I'm a firm believer that once you become unteachable in life, that's when you lost in life because you should always be constantly learning, right? From, you can learn something from anybody and you have to be open-minded to that. And that's the thing that I think that has, you know, given me certain successes in life is that I was always willing to learn and it's okay not to know and i didn't know anything about you know the restaurant industry and i'm open and i feel comfortable saying this and talking because i'm not that same person a year this was no year ago but i'm you know a different person and i'm motivated so now i've grown 
a love for it and want to keep on going, right? I was going to ask you uh, your advice to other people and the impact it's had on you, but I think you just answered both of those <laughs> questions very eloquently. Got to keep an open mind, got to take risks, got to, and got to learn. As you get older, the, the risks become more calculated. Mm -hmm. and, I don't, and even if they, the, the particular business didn't work out, I think the, work, the L that people say that you take, it's not an L, it's not a loss, right? I look at it as a lesson. Right. It may be an expensive lesson, right? But yeah, yeah. ultimately it's a lesson learned. And that's how I look at it because um it's a it's a journey, man. And I just am grateful to still be motivated to do some of the things, even like I said, after you know, things didn't work out in my favor, but I still just pick myself up and like, all right, well, what's next? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's just how I've been. Um, coming from nothing is, is, you know, the fear is not not having anything because that's, you know, been in that position no more. I think the fear for me is getting to the point where I stopped trying. Okay. All right. Well, I've been to Philadelphia a couple of times. I like It's got kind of a Boston, I don't know if you've ever been up to Boston, but it's. Yes, I've been to Boston. It definitely has a similar feel. Um, yeah. I went to a, a, a playoff game. I took my son. When oh, the Sixers nice. were playing in Boston, and you know we come draped in our Sixers gear, um, <laughs> we don't care if it's just us two, right? And we were like, kind of course not at the game, and then it's like seeing some of the fans, and it's like, okay, we're from Philly, so we're not really paying you guys any mind because it's a very intense environment, um, similar to Philly and our fans. So I get it. So I, you know, that was the last time. Yeah, one of the few cities that trumps Boston in the Yes, intensity, as you say, of the fan. <laughs> what well, is it? I'm all for it. I'm built. I, I was built for it. So I was yeah. like, getting get my son exposed to that and understanding, like, yeah, you know, it might yeah. be a little intense, but, you know, this is how we are in Philly when anybody comes. Even our own players sometimes we get. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I've, I've seen, yeah. Well, what is it? Eagle, I don't know if it's the same stadium, but where the Eagles play or play, they actually had a courtroom below the stadium. Yes, that was the best. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they booed Santa Claus back in the 80s. <laughs> that's right. That's what I remember. That had to be the crowning achievement of, <laughs> of the fans. Well, you've given me another reason to visit. I, I, I really love pizza, so I'm going to have to make a trek down there and, and try it out. It sounds really good. Um, please, man, let me know. You know, we can uh, lay out the red carpet, man, come through. I appreciate, you know, you. I appreciate this. Um, I appreciate, you know, giving me the platform to... Uh, to just just talk a little um yeah, yeah. well and you know i think a lot of people they don't really they have ideas but then when the rubber meets the road they don't really know the reality of the situation that's kind of what we look for in the working experience like tell us how this works you know and then also the broader topics too are important as well so, yep. all right well hey thanks a lot for doing this uh so everybody, our, all our listeners, please visit Down North Pizza in Philadelphia and try out some of their excellent food. Uh, Muhammad Abdul Hadi, thanks so much for doing this. And uh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me, man. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of The Working Experience. We'd like to thank our sponsors, One Circle Media. If you work for a studio, network, startup, or corporation and are looking for a partner to create media that will build 
engage, and entertain your audience, reach out to me at john at onecirclemedia.com. I would love to hear from you. And that's it. The end. The sweet end. Until our next audio encounter.